following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. All right, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here, and we'll be looking this morning in uh, Matthew chapter 14, uh, one of Jesus' most really incredible miracles, and so... We'll begin by a reading together. I just want to thank Lydia is going to be doing translation this morning. So we have a few volunteers. So this is our first time trying this. So we're going to pray for Lydia that she uh, has God's help. So let's pray for her and for me both. Father, we just thank you for this day. And we uh, thank you that you give your spirit who is our supply of everything we need. And so we, we, we trust in you to... Uh, to give me the words to say, help Lydia as she tries to translate, give her understanding, and really give all of us ears to hear and uh, your spirit empowering to understand your word and to hear what, what you have for us each individually this morning. So we give this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, look, uh, read uh, Matthew 14, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, They need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, Bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking up the five loaves and the two fish, he he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Uh, I don't know that uh, we need to necessarily rank the impressiveness of miracles, but in my book, like this is just a really impressive miracle, right? Uh, stunning in what Jesus does here, uh, feeding uh, five thousand. And as Uh, Matthew points out it's 5,000 men, not counting women and children. So scholars estimate, you know, if if even many of them were married, if they brought their children, the number could easily be between 10 and 20,000 people. I mean, I lived in a place in Colorado where the whole county was only 20,000 people. And here Jesus feeds this massive crowd with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, not that it really matters the size of the loaf, but um, like uh, they were probably like pita breads, you know, so not even big loaves, small loaves, and probably two smaller fish, right? Stunning miracle. And not only does he feed all those people with this very small amount of food, but when it's done, they gather 12 basketfuls of leftovers, 12. So each disciple, and the basket here is a very specific basket that the Jews used oftentimes to carry their lunch. So it's kind of like the little Thai lunch boxes, if you've ever seen the little bamboo. Kind of like that. 
So maybe not a huge basket, we don't know, but um, still 12 of them left over. So Jesus said, it doesn't say they just, uh, like some, some scholars uh, are so overwhelmed by this miracle, they try to explain it away, right? And it's funny because one of the ways they explain it is, well, Jesus, they all got like a communion size, you know, bite. I'm telling you, uh, five loaves for 10,000 people, a communion size is still way too big, right? There's no way, no way. It was bigger than that. And besides that, even if everybody got that, how would you end up with 12 basketfuls of leftovers, right? That's impossible. So what Jesus does here is really extraordinary as he uh, multiplies their, their small resources many times over. Uh, and, and certainly this miracle shows how amazing and powerful Jesus is. Uh, and we could kind of build a whole sermon on that, just the power of Jesus to meet our needs. Uh, but uh, as we look at this story in its context, in, in the surrounding stories in Matthew, uh, I believe that Jesus is, is really teaching more than just his power. right? And he's shown over and over in the book of Matthew uh, how powerful he is he's raised the dead. Uh, so it's not just another miracle displaying his power. Jesus is teaching something more specific. And I really believe, as we'll see, that the focus here is not the crowd, but Jesus is doing this mostly to teach the disciples. Right? He wants to teach them about their lives and their ministry. And so that relates to us. Uh, because the, the, the point Jesus is making here very much relates to us as we seek to serve God and do ministry. Uh, this instructs us on how... Where to do that? What should be our heart and, and how we go about uh, doing the ministry that God's called us to? So uh, let's, let's jump into verse 13. Um, and, and the first thing we really see here is something of, of Jesus' heart of compassion. And it's a compassion without conditions. So verse 13 starts off, Jesus heard this. He withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus sets out looking for some solitude. Um, and it's important to understand why he's, he's seeking solitude. Now, for a long time, I really misunderstood this. And if you look at the, the verses right before this, it's, it's explaining how John the Baptist was killed by Herod. And for a long time, I thought, you know, Jesus was sad about John's death, and certainly he was, uh, no doubt. And so the Jesus wanted to get away to kind of grieve the loss of his friend John. But if we read more carefully, starting at verse 1 of chapter 14, we see that the account of John's death is actually a flashback to something that happened weeks or maybe even months or years before this, right? Uh, so it's not relating, because Jesus had already heard this news long before this, right? It's really relating back to verses 1 and 2 uh, of chapter 14, where it says, At that time Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, Right? And then as a side note, it explains how, uh, what kind of person Herod was, how he had killed John the Baptist. But that was something already happened long before. Right? What Jesus is responding to is that now his fame has grown to such an extent that Herod himself knows about Jesus. And he's come up with this crazy idea that Jesus is actually John resurrected from the dead. And it doesn't take a lot uh, you know, genius to figure this out. If, John, if, if Herod killed John once, why wouldn't he try to kill him a second time, right? And uh, so, so Jesus knows that he, he's at some risk because uh, Herod now knows about his life and ministry. And Herod was a crazy guy and not very reliable. So he's getting away 
from the potential threat of Herod. And most likely he goes by the description uh, with the other Gospels. We know that he got in a boat, went across the Sea of Galilee from Capernaum, probably to a remote corner on the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee, which would have been just out of Herod's district. Like, so he goes just far enough away that he's beyond the reach of, of Herod's authority. Um, and, and Jesus doesn't do this because he's a coward, uh, because he's afraid of Herod. Um, but it's strategic. And Jesus did this before with the, with the Pharisees. When they started confronting him all the time, and he was getting in constant debates with the Pharisees in chapter 12, it says Jesus withdrew from them. Right? And it's not because he's afraid. It's not because he uh, avoids conflict. Believe me, Jesus does not avoid conflict when he needs to. But it's just not helpful for his ministry. His ministry is not debate, right? Like that was his ministry, bring it on. But that was not his ministry. And he doesn't want to detract from proclaiming the message of the kingdom by constantly arguing with enemies or, or constantly uh, dealing with, with these, these threats, right? So he goes to a place where he's free to uh, freely proclaim the message to those who will listen without the distraction of these enemies who are after him. But we also know that, that he removed himself to pray. And we didn't read that, but in the next account, when Jesus walks on water, it says in verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So Jesus is also seeking solitude uh, to pray, to seek his Father and it's important, a good reminder for us that Jesus never let ministry and the demands of ministry and the demands of people become an excuse for not spending time with his Father. Right? He never said, well, I'm so busy, and you know, God will understand. I've got this important ministry. Look at all the people I'm helping. Uh, I'll, I'll spend time with him later. No, Jesus makes it a priority to be in, in fellowship and communion and prayer with his Father. So Jesus is seeking solitude, but we find out in the next verse that the crowd is still seeking Jesus. Right? Um, they haven't forgot him, and just because Jesus moved to another district does not deter them. Right? They're motivated. So it says, uh, when, uh, when they heard of it, and we don't know how this news got leaked, but somehow somebody... One of the disciples is probably, you know, bragging, yeah, we're going on vacation to such and such a place. And poof, the word got out. And soon everybody knew where Jesus was going, so much so that they got there before he did. And so Jesus uh, draws near to the shore. And I can just, I mean, I just picture this. Jesus is looking forward to some quiet, like some beach time with his disciples, uh, some rest, some prayer with his father. And as they're rowing closer to the shore and, and the shoreline comes more into view, what he sees is this massive crowd of people on the shore waiting for him. <laughs> like, like, you know, like piranhas about to pounce on their prey, right? And, and, and I don't know what Jesus felt. If it was me, I'd be like, turn this boat around and start rowing the other direction. Let's get out of here. Because I'm just an introvert and crowds of any kind... Scare me. So, but, but Jesus doesn't do that, right? Um, so who, who are these crowds? Where, uh, and who are they? And, and uh, it's important to understand how Matthew uh, identifies and talks about the crowd. 
Okay, obviously it's a big group of people. <laughs> we know that. Uh, we know it's people who are aware of Jesus' ministry. We know that. But it's more than that. Uh, Matthew has, from, from very early on, made a distinction between the crowd versus the disciples. Right? The crowds were seeking Jesus. The crowds were coming and hearing him teach. The crowds were receiving the benefit of his miracles and his ministry. Uh, um, but they were not making the commitment of faith to follow Jesus like the disciples were. And it's not because Jesus was putting up a sign saying, you know, go away, I don't want you. Like, or, or if he's had some kind of really stringent application process where he was screening people and saying, ah, you don't pass, you don't pass, you don't pass, you're not smart enough, you're not good looking enough, whatever. No, Jesus is calling all of them to be followers. All of them. Uh, but it's only this few, this small group of disciples who have taken the step of faith to actually become disciples, followers of Christ, who are in 100%. So for Matthew, the crowd are people who are, uh, are not full-time apprentices, not disciples. They're not people of faith. And in fact, if we remember the, the parables, let's, let's look back to chapter 13. But that's the context of this story, and it's important. What were the parables about? Do you remember? Uh, what was the parable of the sower? Right? Uh, the, the, the worry was that Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom and so many people are not getting it. Maybe Jesus needs to change his strategy. Right? Maybe Jesus is an inept teacher. Maybe he needs to go back to teacher school. Right? Maybe he needs better PowerPoints or needs to learn how to use Facebook. No, that wasn't it, right? Jesus gives this parable, and he says the problem is not the message. The parable is the condition of the soil. It's the heart of the listeners. And he clearly says their problem is they don't understand what I'm saying, just like the prophets predicted. Uh, ever hearing, but never understanding. Right? That's the crowd that's following him here. They're those who did not understand his message. They were the hard soil and the rocky soil and the soil crowded by thorns. Then remember there was the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven uh, where Jesus says the kingdom is coming in ways that were hidden and, not un- and, and were unexpected. Uh, Jesus wasn't what they thought he would be. So when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, they completely write him off because he's not what they expected and they can't explain him. They don't understand him. Right? Uh, and so they reject him. And then finally, there's the parable of the weeds and the dragnet. And remember, in those two parables, uh, there's a separating that takes place at the end of the age between true followers of Christ, those who have, by faith, called themselves out to be disciples, right? who are following Jesus all out, and then there's everybody else. And one are gathered into God's kingdom, and the others are gathered and sent into outer darkness and God's wrath and judgment. Right? So, so when, when, when Matthew talks about the crowd, he's talking about this group, this group of people who are at risk of judgment, who have not practiced faith, who have not made the commitment to truly follow Jesus, who don't understand his message and have not exercised faith. Um, and so the big question is, when we get to chapter 14, verse 13, this, this story, the question we have is, what's Jesus' attitude towards this crowd? Uh, Jesus just got done giving all these parables about the hardness and, and, and poor soil 
and, and the reason why the crowd don't get him. And, and that their destination is going to be judgment if they don't change. Like eventually they will run out of time and God's wrath will fall on them. Right? And even just in this most previous account, Jesus was at his hometown of Nazareth. And, and they, they, they don't get him. And Jesus is unable to do very few works there because of their unbelief. Right, so then Jesus departs. He goes away, and the crowds follow him. And when he sees the crowd, what's his response? Right? Uh, is he done with them? Does he write them off and say, that crowd, they don't get me, they don't understand me. Turn the boat around and let them just fall under God's judgment. They had their chance. Is that what Jesus says? Right? Does he say, I'm done with these stubborn, hard-hearted people. They're stupid. Right? They're, they're clueless. I'm done with them. It says, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them. Right? He had compassion on them. Right? We've got to understand this crowd. They're not people that really are following him as disciples. They, in essence, are using him. And Jesus knows he wants a break. Like if he had any excuse to say, I'm done with this for now. But instead, Jesus does what? He has compassion on them. Um, he puts his own wishes and, and desires aside. And he serves them, not because they've embraced his teaching, not because they're worthy or deserving, but because this is the very heart of God toward sinful people. He keeps proclaiming the message of the kingdom in word and in deed. He's not giving up on them. And he is certainly not done loving them. Um, And it just shows the amazing, patient, unfailing love of God that keeps seeking lost sheep. That keeps seeking sinners. Um, some have rejected Jesus and Satan has already snatched away the seed. Right? But Jesus still loves them. Others are seeking Jesus' help because they need his help, but they don't want to submit to him. He still loves them. He meets them all with mercy and compassion. And so this is a story about Jesus' power, his ability to do anything. But it is also an amazing picture of his heart. Right, that God loves people because it's his nature. Not because we deserve it, not because we're so good, because we've proven ourselves worthy. No, it's because God's heart is a heart of unfailing, unending, unconditional love. Right? Unconditional love. Not based on what we do, but based on his own character and nature. God is love, and it is just what he does, right? God is love, and he loves. Um, Romans 5.8 uh, says it well. And actually, I'm gonna, I was just going to read 5.8, but I think I'm going to read 5.10 as well. Uh, it says this. Maybe you've memorized this. If you haven't, you should. <laughs> uh, Romans 5.8, But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, 
much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Right? While we were enemies, Christ died for us. Right? That's incredible love. Right? He served not only by uh, giving the crowd um, physical bread, but the scripture tells us that he gave his own life, which we celebrate in communion, right? as, as, a, as bread, bread broken for us to give us spiritual life through his body and through his blood uh, poured out on the cross. Right? That's God's love for us. Not because we deserved it, but because of his grace. Uh, so that's the first main point uh, we see here is that, uh, that God has amazing compassion for sinners. But there's more. Uh, so, so Jesus has compassion. He, he comes ashore. He starts healing them. Mark tells us that he also teaches them. Um, uh, and and he's, he's busy all day ministering, all day. And pretty soon the sun starts to set and it's starting to get dark. And uh, the disciples... Uh, probably themselves are starting to get hungry. And they know they're in a very remote, desolate place. Uh, they're looking around. They cannot, believe it or not, they're not in Thailand because they cannot see a 7-Eleven in sight. Right? <laughs> Clearly not in Thailand. Right? No 7-Eleven, no, no, no McDonald's, uh, no villages. Right? And uh, this region, we know, was actually very remote. But they have a plan, they, they, they're, and they're sensitive. It's good. The disciples are aware of uh, people are getting hungry. They're getting hungry. And they're starting to put this together. There's no food, and it's, it's going to be a bit of a journey to the nearest villages. So they say to Jesus, this is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Right? So it sounds like a reasonable plan. Look, Jesus, there's this massive crowd of people. We have no food. Uh, they're going to start getting hungry. Um, and, and the reality is that the, the villages that were around them were small, like maybe three or 400 people. Can you imagine what this would be like? A town of 300 people, 20,000 people show up to buy groceries. Like, like, really, this is not a great plan. Now, uh, uh, but that's their plan. Let's send them out, go buy food, right? Uh, but Jesus says, Jesus responds to them, uh, is interesting. He says, that is not necessary. Right? He says, they do not need to go away. And then he says, really, the most pu- some of the most puzzling words on, on all of the Bible. He says to them, you feed them. You feed them. Have you ever wondered what Jesus had in mind here? Right? What is Jesus expecting of his disciples? Is he serious? You feed them? Uh, is Jesus really expecting that this small band of disciples would be able to feed this massive crowd, right? Is he expecting Jesus? Is Jesus saying, you guys can do miracles, go do a miracle. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Uh, Maybe he's just making fun of them and being dramatic. Well, why don't you feed them? (laughs) Uh, What does Jesus mean by this, right? What is he saying, you feed them? Well, the disciples don't know, and, and I don't think they're particularly amused. They don't think, ah, funny Jesus, right? And notice their response. They say, look, Jesus, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish. Like, we're, we can't, this is not even enough food for their own group. 
Right? Somehow they failed to bring enough food even for themselves. And maybe their thinking was, we're going to go to that little village of 300 people and we're going to get dinner. And now they're realizing if 15,000 people show up before them, there's not going to be any food left. Right? So they don't even have enough food for themselves. Uh, and Jesus says, you feed them? Um, no way, right? No way. Uh, even if they had enough bread for a hundred people, right? You know, they brought 50 loaves of bread. Uh, this is not going to begin to be enough. Uh, well, uh, I think that Jesus says this because, uh, and, and we need to understand that, that Jesus, that this miracle and, and what Jesus wants to teach is focused on the disciples, right? He's, he's speaking to them about their responsibility and their role as his, as his followers to carry on his ministry, to do what Jesus did. And the reality is that even though it was dinner time and uh, there wasn't food, nobody was going to starve to death. Like Jesus could have said, yeah, we need to just send them home, and maybe they had to go all the way back to their homes, but uh, nobody was going to starve to death, right? Uh, it wasn't that far. From where they were was probably only about five miles from Capernaum. So it would have been a little, on foot, a little bit of a walk, but um, it wasn't like they were so far out in the middle of nowhere that they weren't going to eat for days, right? There, there would be breakfast, right? Maybe even a late dinner. But Jesus wants to teach the disciples something important. Um, and, and we see that Jesus, first of all, is moved with the same compassion that caused him to heal. So he does care about the needs of this crowd, right? He's still caring for them, and he's still showing compassion for them. He's still moved to minister to them. But he asks his disciples to feed them. He puts the question before them because he wants to teach them something through this miracle, right? Um, And what's interesting is, this is really one of the most remarkable miracles Jesus does, but it seems that it kind of goes by the crowd, like there's no, no indication that the crowd even knew what was going on. Right? Because they didn't, they didn't hear this discussion about how they don't have any food. Uh, Jesus says, hey, y'all sit down. And he prays this blessing. And the disciples start passing out food. And for those in the crowd, all they know is, you know, the plate comes and there's bread and fish and they eat. Right? They, don't, they don't really see it happening. Now the disciples probably do as they're dividing and passing out and it just keeps... Like, there's always more, there's always enough, right? But for the crowd, and one of the reasons I would suspect that is that throughout the, the gospel, um, Matthew over and over again is saying the crowd was astonished. The crowd marveled, right? The crowd was blown away by what Jesus did. But here, there's no comment at all, right? It seems like the crowd didn't even know. Because the crowd, the miracle really wasn't for the crowd. It was for the disciples, Uh, So what's the point Jesus is making to the disciples uh, by this miracle? What is he trying to teach them? Well, I think the principle is simply this. With Jesus, there is always enough. With Jesus, there is always enough. Um, Two principles that Jesus brings out. The first one is that, that they were to have a compassion for the lost that moved them to do something. Now, the disciples had compassion, right? They, they were sensitive. They weren't clueless. They were sensitive to the crowd's hunger, probably because they were hungry and a little worried. But nonetheless, they were, they were sensitive, and they came to Jesus, and they had compassion. 
But the problem was their compassion did not end with them doing something about it. Their compassion only went as far as, well, we need to send them home so they can fix the problem themselves. Right? Well, that's not the call of a disciple. Jesus doesn't say to be a good Samaritan who sees the needs around us and says, well, gee, I hope it works out for you. Right? Boy, I hope, I hope that gets better. That looks pretty bad. Right? See you later. Right? No. We're to have compassion, but we're, have, we're to have the kind of compassion that moves us to action. We're to be a people who do something in response to the needs we see around us. Right? Um, and that's what Jesus expects of his disciples, of, of true followers. Right? They're, to be, they're to be engaging in, in a ministry of mercy and compassion to those around them who have needs. Um, and it's not enough just to see a problem or to feel bad for people, but we need to ask the question, what is God calling me to do about it? Right? Not just send them away. Right? That was not, that was not, and that's why Jesus said that they don't need to go. Right? You're missing your opportunity because you're not willing to take action. Um, but, but in all fairness to the disciples, right? like if you and I were there, we would say, well, yeah, sure, do something. What? We have no resources. We've got five loaves of bread and two fish. What are we supposed to do? Right? And and re- so here's the thing, and we well, probably all get this. This is a reality of ministry life. Amen? Right? This is the way it is. I've been serving God for 40 years, and I have never had enough money or time or resources or staff or people or wisdom or anything. Right? Ever. I have always felt like I'm trying to feed 10,000 people with five loaves and two fish. Anybody there? Anybody feel that way? Right? Finances, raising support, right? Uh, how many of you have recently sent out a prayer letter to your supporters saying, please stop supporting us. We're at 200%. We have all this money we don't know what to do with it. Would you please just stop giving us money? Anybody? Anybody? Like, if you're that person, talk to me because I want to funnel it my way, right? Right? That's not how it is. No, we're struggling to keep from dropping below our minimum support level all the time. I see lots of prayer letters where people are saying, you know, we're at 70%, we're at 60%. If we don't get this amount, we have to go home, right? That's, that's the reality we live in. Five loaves and two fish, never enough, right? Staff, volunteers, right? Um, isn't it cool this morning? We got an announcement. Denise is saying, would you all stop volunteering for Sunday school? Like, if you want to volunteer, I'm going to have to put you on a waiting list, and you're probably going to have to wait several months because we just have no room for you, right? Is that what we say? No, right? Always. We're short. We need more people. We never have enough. Preaching, right? Uh, never have I come to a passage or a sermon or a passage of the Bible where I knew the Bible so well, and I had such a great and deep understanding of you all, and so many amazing illustrations, that the sermon just wrote itself. Right? Never happens that way. Right? I always come short, feeling like, God, I think I'm reading it upside down because I don't understand what you're saying here. Right? Every week it's that way. Right? That's, that's the principle of life. And it's a principle of ministry. Uh, that we 
We'll never feel like we have enough resources. And that was the disciples. You know, I've got five loaves and two fish. Are you serious? You want us to feed 10,000 people? But of course, we know that the disciples missed one critically important resource when they took inventory, right? When they were counting what they had at their disposal, they counted bread and fish. What did they miss? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus. They missed Jesus, right? Right? They thought, they thought the only resources available to them were the material things in their hands. And they forgot to take count of Jesus. And I don't think Jesus expected them to do a great miracle. I don't think Jesus was saying, why don't you go out and you turn the bread into you know, enough to feed everybody. Jesus is not saying that. But he is saying, why didn't you come to me and ask me what my solution is? Right? You think you figured it out and that there's no way to deal with this other than send them away. Why didn't you ask me right, what my plan was to do something to show compassion, to minister to these people? Um, <clears throat> You see, when you have Jesus, you always have more than enough. Always. Right? That's the principle. Um, you always have enough to meet every need that God calls you and sends you to do. Right? Um, one of our problems is that we all, I, or many of us, I won't say we all, maybe you don't, but I think uh, a, a common problem is that we struggle with the sin of self-confidence. Did you know that self-confidence is a sin? Probably most of you are going, what? What? That can't be a sin. That's the American way. Right? Not to just pick on Americans, but... Uh, in Western cultures, self-confidence has become a very definition of health. A very definition of health. Um, it is seen as the cure for all kinds of problems. I remember, uh, and I've heard this, uh, you know, looking at behavior problems in the classroom. And over and over again it said, well, those children have problems with self-esteem. Right? If you give them a better self-esteem, they will have better behavior. Okay? Actually, research, they've done studies on this, and they found that kids who have better self-esteem uh, statistically are more likely to bully others. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't solve problems. It makes it worse. Right? Um, and teachers are warned, you know, don't do anything that does not build up a child's self-confidence. If, you, if, you don't, if you're not building up their self-confidence and self-esteem, you're contributing to their ruin. Like, that's the problem. People are in prison because they don't have self-confidence. They have poor self-esteem. Right? Is that true? No. They're in prison because they are sinners. Right? It is not a problem of self-esteem. It's a problem of our fallen, sinful human nature. Right? We're not supposed to have self-esteem and self-confidence because we're sinners. That's the truth. And pretending that we are together, that we are good, that we have good self-esteem, is not helpful. Right? Uh, too often, the goal of secular counseling is to restore people's self-confidence. Uh, if you want to get a promotion and rise up in the business world, you have to be overflowing with self-confidence. Um, There's such a huge part of Western culture that many Christians believe it's one of the fruits of the Spirit, right? 
Love. Be filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-confidence. Is that what it says? I think it does. Let me look that up. Right? And here's the thing. Self-confidence is telling yourself, I have what it takes. I have enough. That's the root of self-confidence. I have all the resources at my disposal to get the job done. I am smart enough. I am capable enough. I am wise enough. I have the information. I have the resources. I can get it done. That's at the heart and root of self-confidence. But Jesus' statement to his disciples, you feed them, is a revelation that we do not in ourselves have enough. Right? They're like, we can't do this. We don't have enough. Right? Um, and, and Jesus honestly wants to destroy our self-confidence. Right? And really the gospel destroys our self-confidence because the gospel says we are sinners. Right? We do not have enough. We are not good enough. We are not capable enough. Um, it is a lie. Right? It is a lie of Satan. And we will never have enough. Now, some people fake it well, and some people can become very successful. But you will never have enough to do God's work and to be successful in building his kingdom in your own strength. You don't have enough, right? Uh, until you have Jesus, right? With Jesus, you have more than enough. Without him, you have nothing, right? What we need is Jesus' confidence, not self-confidence. We need a greater confidence in Jesus' power and his heart to help us. Um, and it really, doesn't, it really doesn't matter how much or how little we have. Like we, we like to uh, compare ourselves, uh, and even though we know we don't have enough, it always makes us feel good to know I have more than you, <laughs> right? Well, I might not have much, but I've got way more than Walt. <laughs> so there, Right? But, but imagine if the disciples had said, had said, boy, it's a good thing we had five loaves and not four. Could you imagine if we had only had four loaves and one fish? What would Jesus have done, right? Wouldn't have mattered, right? Or conversely, if they had had 50 loaves or 100 loaves, would it have mattered? Would Jesus have said, boy, now I have enough. Now I have enough to actually do something. No, Right? Jesus can do it with nothing. Um, And so it's not about how much we have. It's about how much Jesus has and our faith and confidence in him. So let's apply this as we close with three simple things. First, uh, so so we are called to care. We are called to be people who show God's heart of compassion in ways that... that, uh, Call us to action. So, so three simple applications. First, we need to cultivate that heart of compassion. And the only way to do that is to really come to understand God's heart of love and compassion for us. Right? To really re- be reminded, I don't have enough. I am a sinner. And that when I was, while we were still sinners, God showed his love for us by sending Jesus to die for us. Right? When we were his enemies, uh, he gave up his son to die for us to reconcile us to himself. Um, uh, when we come to know God's heart of compassion toward us, it changes us and it makes us be sensitive to have that same compassion 
to broken people around us. Right? Not just our friends, but our enemies and, and the crowd who, who don't get it. Right? That we have compassion for them. That we walk alongside those people in a way that we become aware of their struggles and their need. And we want to do we want to help them. We care for them. Second thing, we don't just have compassion, but we have compassion that moves us to take action. Right? We really determine we're going to do something when we see needs around us. Now, it's a hard one in the world we live in because of social media and everything. You know, we can see that we can see the needs of the world, right? And I don't think God calls us to meet every need everywhere all the time. But, but God does bring into our life and right in front of us people with needs. Right? And those are the people we need to be concerned with. How do we help those that God has brought into our path, into our life? Uh, how do we uh, have compassion and help them? Uh, Jesus says, you feed them. You feed them. That You do something to help them. Now, it's a different sermon. Help can be a very complicated thing. And there's good ways and bad ways to help people. And that's a whole different topic we don't have time for this morning. Uh, but let me just say this. We, we do need wisdom. And, and it's not that we come up with our own plan. Right? The, the disciples' great failure was that they didn't go to Jesus and say, Jesus, what, what do you want us to do? The crowd is hungry. What do you want us to do about it? And that's what we need to do. When we see needs around us, it's not that we come up with our own ideas. But we go to Jesus and say, Jesus... What would you have me do to help in this, this need? What would you have me do to come alongside and care for this person? Self-confidence says, I know exactly what needs to be done. But Jesus' confidence says, I have no idea what's best. Lord Jesus, teach me, show me what you have. And lastly, uh, learn to be more Jesus-confident, <laughs> Right? Uh, realize that uh, when we take inventory of our resources, we have a lot more than five loaves and two fish. We have Jesus, the creator of the universe. That's pretty good, right? Uh, we don't need to have a lot of stuff when we have the maker. We have the manufacturer on our, on our side. Um, remember our own inadequacy, but remember Jesus' complete and total Adequacy to provide everything we need. And again, a different, different topic. Jesus here is not talking about meeting the needs of the disciples. Although it's interesting that they ultimately were blessed by blessing others. Right? They ultimately got their needs met by serving others. There's a lesson there probably. Um, but, but the focus here is on uh, not me. It's on how can I be equipped by God's provision to reach out to those around me with God's love and grace in ways that come alongside them to provide real, practical help to meet their needs. Uh, Remember this, uh, Jesus is always enough. When he leads us to do something, he will always provide all that's needed. When, When Jesus leads us to do something, he will always provide everything we need. And I can hear you say, well, yeah, but I tried that and it didn't work. Okay, here's the thing. Sad reality. If we fail uh, because we run out of resources, because we don't have enough, it is, it is because we have been implementing our own plan, not his. 
right? If, if it doesn't work, it's because it was my idea, right? God never promised to fund all of your projects. He's only promised to fund his own, right? So, so if, if we're short, uh, it's because we're not listening, not because God's not faithful, not because he doesn't care, not because he's not able, because he's able, right? It means we're just not listening, right? We're, we're trying to push our own agenda instead of asking him what his plan is. All right, let's pray. Walt's going to come and lead us. Let's, uh, let's pray. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.